Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hey everyone. By now you probably know that Nate is having some health issues and is busy recuperating. So for this episode, he asked me, Rob Christofferson, to step in and take the mic. You may know me as Myron Dripshin from the Order of Podcasters or the Dungeon Master of Rolling Through the Realms, but most likely you know me from the Our Strange Skies podcast. Nate also wanted me to thank everyone for the huge number of positive notes and well wishes he's received. It means a huge amount to him, and knowing he has such amazing listeners out there. This week, Nate has written another story about an assassination and possible conspiracy that he thinks you're all going to enjoy. So without further ado, on with the show. Back during the first century BCE, the Mediterranean Sea was considered treacherous waters. This was not only because of the threat of storms or other typical nautical dangers, but also because over time the Mediterranean gained a reputation as the proverbial bad part of town, where sailors often fell prey to a much more human danger, pirates. There was one particularly notorious region of southern Anatolia, known as Cilicia Trachea, or the Rough Cilicia, which was known to be swarming with a band of pirates that terrified many Romans. According to Plutarch, in 75 BCE, a group of Cilician pirates captured a ship carrying one particular passenger of note who had been on his way to study oratory in Rhodes. Unlike everyone else, though, right from the get-go, this unusual 25-year-old passenger refused to act like a prisoner. This passenger's name was Julius Caesar. When the pirates realized they had captured a young nobleman, they informed Caesar they planned on ransoming him for the sum of 20 talents. Caesar flat out laughed in their faces. Didn't they know who he was? Caesar told the pirates they could easily get 50 talents for a prisoner of his stature. Then the future ruler of the Roman Empire sent his own entourage out to collect his own ransom. The pirates were completely dumbfounded. After all, what kind of hostage negotiates his own kidnapping? The trip to collect the money would take 38 days. While the negotiators were gone, Caesar made himself right at home among the pirates, and even began shushing them at night when he wanted to get some sleep. During the day, he spent his time forcing them to listen to his speeches and poetry, and he'd even insult them as illiterates if any of them didn't seem sufficiently impressed. He also participated with the pirates in their own pirate games and activities and began to boss them around as if he were their commander. And from time to time, Caesar would jokingly tell them that one day he would hunt them all down and have them crucified. The men all got a big laugh out of this. Only, he wasn't joking. Once Caesar was freed, despite only being a private citizen at that point, he made good on his threat. Caesar hired a small fleet that he sailed back to the island where he'd been held captive. 
Once there, Caesar's men captured all the pirates, and in addition, he even took back the 50 talents of silver, along with all the other stolen possessions. Caesar then delivered the pirates to the authorities at the prison at Pergamon. After that, he went to meet the proconsul of Asia, Marcus Junius, and demanded that the pirates be executed. But Junius refused, explaining he thought the pirates could prove more valuable if they were sold as slaves. But Caesar wouldn't take no for an answer. Before word could leak back to the prison that his request for an execution had been denied, he sailed back to the prison at Pergamon and told everyone the execution was to be carried out immediately. Although, there was one tiny detail where Caesar didn't stay true to his word. Rather than have the pirates crucified, Caesar decided to show them some leniency and instead slit their throats. Keep in mind, this was all before Caesar became the ultimate political powerhouse in Rome. But this incident did demonstrate some clear early signs of what the man was capable of. Throughout his early life, Caesar had an innate talent for winning people over through his intelligence, cunning, and flat-out chutzpah. Within just a few decades, he became a revered general of the Roman army for his conquering of Gaul and for his unprecedented move in crossing the Rubicon and defeating the leader Pompey in a bloody civil war. After that, Caesar went on to become the absolute consul and dictator of Rome. And although Caesar was a truly ruthless tyrant over Rome, he also did some positive things as well. He used his new power to carry out some much-needed sweeping reforms, including enlarging the Senate, building the Forum, and revising the Roman calendar. But one big problem that comes with dictatorship is that it also comes with the constant threat of wearing a target on your back. There is always going to be someone looking to take you down. And in this case, that's precisely what happened. During the Ides of March in 44 BC, a group of Republican senators conspired to assassinate Julius Caesar. You could find parallels between the life of Julius Caesar and a number of other political heavyweights throughout history. One of the more unusual modern examples was Huey P. Long, the former governor and United States senator from the state of Louisiana who reigned supreme during the 1930s. Huey Long was a larger-than-life figure who became a champion of the poor and the scourge of the wealthy elite. Like Caesar, Huey Long demonstrated major political ambitions from an early age. He was also a master at winning a cult-like following of supporters to his side and for ruthlessly protecting his position of power. Throughout his tenure as governor, Long made many indelible changes to his home state of Louisiana, but at the cost of creating scores of enemies. People who would like nothing more than to see the man dead. Also like Caesar, Long's political career was cut short when he was assassinated. Or at least that's the official story. There are those who believe the accused assassin, Dr. Carl Weiss, was innocent and that the true story of Huey Long's death was part of a massive cover-up. I'm Rob Christofferson, coming to you live from my perch in the Dallas Book Depository, and this is The Conspirators.
On the day of Huey Long's funeral, more than 200,000 of his supporters poured into Baton Rouge, where he was to be laid to rest beneath the shadow of the 33-story state capitol building Long had built as a $5 million monument to himself. Many of his supporters were poor and couldn't afford transportation, so they marched on foot across roads paved by Long or across bridges he built. Some of them even crossed the Huey P. Long Bridge into Baton Rouge, one of two bridges in the state bearing his name. Huey Long was beloved by his devout supporters. He had developed an almost cult-like status where in the eyes of his followers he could do no wrong. For years after his death, there were even some people who swore that Huey Long wasn't really dead. Some folks said that he was just hiding out from his enemies until he could one day make his triumphant return. Huey Pierce Long was born on August 30th, 1893 in Winfield, a tiny rural community of north-central Louisiana. He was the eighth of nine children, one of whom died in infancy. His father was a livestock farmer, and his family was considered well-off by comparison to most of the poor families elsewhere throughout the community. Wynn Parish, where Huey was born, was one of the few that opposed secession during the Civil War. Most residents believed the war was a rich man's cause, being fought on the blood of poor folks who didn't know any better. The residents of Wynn Parish would also turn out to be big supporters of William Jennings Bryan, the legendary Democratic Party politician and champion of the common man who once famously said, Every man a king, but no man wears a crown. This became a catchphrase that Huey Long would carry with him throughout his political career. When Long was growing up, roughly half the poor farmers in the state had never set foot in the classroom, and half of the remainder never made it past fourth grade, which made Long unusual in the fact that his family pushed him to get an education. From an early age, Long decided he wasn't going to follow in his father's footsteps and work the family farm for the rest of his life. It was said that Huey could never stand being second at anything. It would always be the first to jump head first into any new endeavor. He signed his school books, quote, The Honorable Huey P. Long. But school bored him. He claimed to have inherited his mother's photographic memory. He even went so far as to demonstrate his abilities to his teachers by talking them into letting him skip the seventh grade. Huey was like that. He was born with the gift of gab. He had a natural way of talking people into whatever he wanted. He was an excellent debater, but a poor loser. When he joined his school's debate team, any time he lost, he dismissed the judges as biased or ignorant. He managed to get himself expelled from high school in his senior year after he created a secret brotherhood of rule breakers. They all wore red ribbons on their lapels as a sign of solidarity. The final straw was when they got caught printing up handbills denouncing the faculty and demanding the school principal's resignation. But even after Long was kicked out of school, he still had zero intentions of ever becoming a farmer. So at age 17, he started out by becoming a traveling salesman, selling goods such as gold dust washing powder never-fail kerosene cans, and black draft laxatives. He was good at it, too. Long could seemingly sell anything to anyone. 
In Shreveport in 1911, he judged a bake-off he organized to sell a cottonseed substitute for lard called Codaline. The winners he picked were a pretty, dark-eyed stenographer named Rose McConnell and her mother. Two and a half years later, he married Rose. She would go on to tell biographers years later that even back then, Huey was convinced he would be governor one day. But Huey Long not only had big dreams, he also had a plan to achieve them as well. In 1914, he borrowed enough money to attend one year at Tulane Law School. When the money ran out, he actually talked the school board into allowing him to take his own private bar exam that he easily passed. He set up shop in a tiny office over his uncle's bank and began practicing law after that. Throughout his legal career, Long never took a case against a poor person. He never made much money during this time, but that wasn't his goal. He made a name for himself as a local champion for the common man, and he made sure to promote each of his legal victories by getting articles written up about them in the local newspapers. Huey Long saw injustice and terrible inequality throughout his home state. Standard Oil was one of the biggest businesses in Louisiana, and their money flowed directly toward the corrupt political machine in New Orleans, known as the Old Regulators, or the Choctaws. These political power brokers ran the state by controlling sheriff's departments and courthouses throughout the outlying parishes. As a result, the poor were deliberately left to fend for themselves. At the time, there were only 300 miles of paved roads in the entire state of Louisiana, and only three bridges. The state also had the second highest illiteracy rate in the nation. Huey Long promised that his first acts as governor were going to be to change all that. Now, he just had to get elected. In 1918, Long was 24 years old, which meant he was too young to hold most state offices. But he was old enough to serve on the state's railroad commission, which also regulated the state's utilities. So Long ran a campaign on the platform of reforming the railroads and for fighting what he described as, quote, the Wall Street Money Devils. He easily won his election to the Railroad Commission. After that, he began to practice what he preached. When the phone company raised the rates 20%, Long immediately rolled them back. And when the phone company sued, the case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where, once again, Long prevailed. While acting as a public service commissioner, Long slandered then-governor John M. Parker by calling him a tool of Standard Oil. Long was arrested on charges of criminal libel and later released on a $5,000 bond. The court found Long guilty of two counts of libel, giving him a $1 fine for the first count and a 30-day suspended sentence for the second. Long refused to pay the fine. Instead, his supporters in the court took up a collection to pay the fine for him. In 1924, Long ran for governor and came in a strong third. This loss was actually a good thing because it helped make his name public knowledge, thereby making things easier for him in 1928 when he ran again. He crisscrossed the state in a shiny new Ford. Throughout the rural parishes, he gave more than 15,000 fiery speeches. Race and religion were always major underlying factors in the campaign. Long never really embraced organized religion other than as a tool to win people over. 
His photographic memory helped him to memorize scripture and made it easy for him to quote it back to the like-minded crowds. At one point, he even attended a single semester at Oklahoma Baptist University. Although he ultimately decided the life of a preacher wasn't what he was destined for. As for race, Long was considered to be a champion of the Ku Klux Klan. In his speeches, though he often avoided talking directly about race, keeping things focused firmly on himself, he plastered posters bearing his face on every tree and telephone pole he went by. He stood up in churches and county fairs railing against the rich fat cats in the capital who left the poor with nothing. He loved to point out they were in a cotton-producing state, yet there were thousands of people without clothes to wear. They also grew a surplus of wheat, yet many still went hungry. Most of the rich politicians saw Long as nothing but a drunken buffoon, but the poor communities loved him and began to rally around him. Every man a king became Huey Long's battle cry. He would carry it with him throughout his political career, and even had it turned into a popular song that he played at all his campaign rallies. He promised to build free roads and bridges, more hospitals, and to provide free textbooks to every child. He also swore he would finally hold the wealthy elite accountable. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Raycon. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm always looking at a screen, now more than ever. And whether you're an avid news watcher or in serious need of a distraction, unplugging yourself is easier said than done. One of my favorite ways to rest my eyes and still get the content I'm itching for? By putting in my Raycon wireless earbuds and listening to something great. Whether you're catching up on your favorite news podcast, binging an audiobook, or powering through your workout with a pumped-up playlist, a pair of Raycons in your ears can make all the difference. My Raycon earbuds both look and sound great, and I've used them more than once to edit podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. No dangling wires or stems to get in your way here. Raycons come in a range of stylish colors, but always with a comfortable in-ear fit for a more discreet look. Raycons are built to perform anywhere and anytime with water and sweat-resistant construction and Bluetooth that pairs quickly and seamlessly. And with enough battery life for six hours of playtime, you can unplug for a while. The best part? Raycon makes great sound accessible to everyone, with wireless earbuds starting at half the price of other premium audio brands. Right now, Raycon's offering 15% off all their products for my listeners, and here's what you got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com TC. That's it. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. So feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com TC. Buyraycon.com TC. And now, back to the show. On election day... Tens of thousands of sharecroppers, small-town shopkeepers, and more turned out to vote for Huey Long. He won the election for governor by the largest margin in Louisiana history. Long immediately set about making good on his promises. He began consolidating power, rewarding his political cronies with government contracts and jobs, and punishing anyone who stood in his way. If there wasn't a law in the books that allowed him to do something, he made sure the legislature created one. In his first months as governor, Long began building thousands of miles of new roads and 111 new bridges. By 1931, Louisiana was employing 10% of those working on roads and bridges in the entire country. 
On top of all that, he also built night schools for the illiterate, made good on his promise of free textbooks for school children, and built many new hospitals for the poor. He also began building up a political war chest and skimming off the public coffers. At the same time, he led an all-out assault on the wealthy elite, in particular Standard Oil, demanding they pay their fair share for the improvements. After Long was elected governor, he also gave himself a nickname that stuck. He called himself the Kingfish, after a character from the popular Amos and Andy radio program. On March 18, 1929, the Kingfish called a special six-day session of the Louisiana legislature to take up a bill that would have placed a tax of five cents on every barrel of refined crude oil. Standard Oil fought back hard, claiming that if the tax were enacted, they'd be forced to lay off thousands of workers in the state. This also meant many legislatures would be forced to face mobs of angry unemployed voters come election time. On March 25th, Representative Harry Boggan of Shreveport introduced legislation that would have actually stripped power away from Long. The Kingfish panicked and tried to force a special session to adjourn early. Things grew so heated that a fistfight broke out in the chamber between pro- and anti-Long supporters. By the following Monday, the Louisiana House of Representatives had seen enough and began impeachment proceedings against the Kingfish. On April 19th, impeachment proceedings began against Long on 19 accounts of abuse of power, including bribery, and even accusations of attempting to have one of the members of the legislature murdered. By the time the hearings were over, the House voted overwhelmingly for Long's impeachment. Seeing the writing on the wall, Long began calling in a bunch of favors and offering bribes such as lucrative jobs to members of the Louisiana Senate. He was able to get enough senators to sign a pledge not to impeach him, that they were unable to get the two-thirds majority needed to oust him from office. Over the next few months, Long politicized every state office throughout every parish in Louisiana. He packed local government offices with his diehard supporters and punished anyone who might stand in his way by having them fired or demoted. With control of the state in hand, the Kingfish next set his sights on controlling the press. He founded his own newspaper, called the Louisiana Progress, which advocated his dreams of sharing the wealth of the nation's richest corporations and individuals with the poorest citizens. But Long wasn't satisfied with keeping things just in Louisiana. He wanted to spread his message throughout the United States. So in 1930, Long announced he was going to run in the 1932 election for the U.S. Senate seat occupied by J.E. Ransdale. Long immediately began a smear campaign against Lansdale, who had been one of Louisiana's senators since 1913. He painted the conservative candidate as yet another wealthy politician in the pocket of the big corporations. Once again, Long won the Senate seat by a large margin. But he also had a problem. He decided he was going to serve simultaneously as both a U.S. senator and the Louisiana governor until the next election, when he could install a hand-chosen successor for the governor's seat. This was highly illegal, but Long didn't care. But he ran into other problems as soon as he went to Washington, D.C. 
Many of the folksy tactics he used to gain influence in Louisiana didn't go over very well in D.C. A lot of his Senate colleagues thought he was a buffoon and refused to take him seriously. Another problem Long faced was that he had to keep rushing back to Louisiana whenever there was any sign he was losing grip of the power down there. He ended up spending far more time in his home state than he did in D.C. When he was in the Senate, he was largely ignored. He introduced a tax bill that would force individuals with a net worth greater than $2 million to relinquish 65% of those earnings back in taxes. But this bill, like every other bill Long introduced, went nowhere. At the same time, Long's popularity did manage to catch the attention of another rising star in national politics, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Long campaigned for Roosevelt, although he already had aspirations to one day run for president himself. In 1932, Long managed to maintain control over Louisiana by choosing his childhood friend, Oscar K. Allen, to become the governor. After Roosevelt won the presidency, Long began sending word to FDR that he felt the man owed him a bunch of favors for all the campaigning he did, but felt slighted when his demands weren't met. Back home in Louisiana, Long was under growing fire. In May 1932, a concerned citizen named Harry Gamble delivered a laundry list of complaints about Long's corruption to the state legislature. In Washington, the IRS began investigating Long for possible tax fraud. Then in 1933, a state investigation was opened over allegations of voter fraud in the election of Long's friend, John Overton, to the state legislature. Long himself got sucked in when he was accused of running a number of dummy candidates to ensure Overton won. Although eventually these charges were dismissed when the commission determined that Overton would have won even without Long's intervention. In June 1933, FDR summoned Long to the White House to try to make amends, but soon things grew heated after Long adamantly refused to back away from promoting state control over local patronage. By the time Long left the White House, he vowed he would never work with President Roosevelt again. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In August, a singer named Gene Buck invited Long to spend an evening with him at the Sands Point Club on Long Island, New York. Long had a well-known reputation as an obnoxious drunk. 
This was something he proved once again when he stumbled into the restroom and proceeded to urinate on the shoes of the man standing next to him at the urinal. The outraged man slugged Long, opening a huge gash over his left eye. Long's enemies actually offered the man a medal for his good deed. Long came away from the encounter swearing it had been a planned assault set up by a group of ruthless bankers out to get him. He even insisted there hadn't been just one assailant, but three or four men who ganged up on him and threatened him with a knife. He even suggested at one point that Al Capone might have been involved. By 1934, Long had his sights set firmly on running for president. To counter President Roosevelt's New Deal legislation, Long introduced his own Share the Wealth plan in the Senate. In it, he proposed every American would have a home, a car, a radio, and all the other essentials needed for modern life. In mid-May 1934, approximately 500 members of an anti-long group showed up with guns at the state capitol building with the goal of dismantling the Kingfish's government. Long learned about the march in advance, though, and he used his political influence by bribing and threatening the state legislatures to put a stop to the coup attempt. Meanwhile, Long continued to push through new legislation that further cemented his power. For example, he passed a law where all state ballot boxes would be controlled by Long-appointed election supervisors. In response, several angry New Orleans citizens made a plea to the U.S. Justice Department to launch an investigation into Long's political operations. This was an investigation that FDR himself also called for, further angering Long. But in one more sign of Long thumbing his nose at authority, the Kingfish announced he would personally conduct an investigation into political corruption in New Orleans. The irony was lost on no one that Long himself was the source of much of that corruption. In 1935, Long announced his plans to run against Roosevelt in the 1936 election. He even published a book titled My First Days in the White House. On September 7, 1935, Governor Allen, acting under Huey Long's orders, called for a special session of the state legislature to consider 39 bills. Chief among those bills was House Bill No. 1, which Long aimed squarely at gerrymandering the district of one of his main political enemies, the district judge Benjamin Pavey, thereby forcing him out of office come the next election. The committee rubber-stamped this bill and sent it directly to the House to take up. Not only was Long intent on ensuring Justice Pavey would lose his job, but he also planned on smearing the Pavey family by spreading the rumor that their family tree contained, quote, Negro blood. Long went so far as to prepare circulars attesting to this rumor, which he planned on spreading. Were the plan not scrapped when Judge Pavey's son-in-law, Baton Rouge physician Carl Weiss Jr., allegedly shot Long? I say allegedly, because although the history books all claim that Weiss showed up at the state capitol and shot Long in the gut, there are those to this day who insist the man was innocent. The official story goes that on February 8, 1935, the House convened to take up Long's stack of bills, including House Bill 1. At Long's direction, the House was ordered to convene at 8 p.m. 
When the legislators broke for a meal, Long went to his suite on the 24th floor of the Capitol building for a snack. Afterwards, at approximately 8.45, Long and his entourage of bodyguards made their way down to the House floor so the Kingfish could observe and make sure the legislators voted the way he wanted. Just before 9.30pm, Long was seen rushing down the hallway ahead of his bodyguards. According to one of Long's bodyguards, Joe Messina, Long was rushing ahead when a small man, later identified as Carl Weiss, stepped out in front of him, brandishing a gun. Messina said he immediately put out his hand to deflect the man's gun, but the gun went off anyway, hitting Huey Long in the gut. Long grabbed his stomach and bolted from the scene. According to Supreme Court Justice John Fournette, the bodyguards all tried to tackle the gunman, but he instead crouched down and attempted to fire again. One of Long's bodyguards, Murphy Roden, suffered a wound to his hand when he tried to grab the gun and got his thumb caught in the ejector slide. After that, multiple gunshots rang out in the hallway, and by the time the shooting was over, Carl Weiss lay dead. By all accounts, all the bodyguards emptied their weapons, firing a total of 61 rounds into Carl Weiss's body. Long stumbled down the steps of the Capitol, clutching his bleeding belly. He was rushed to our Land of Lake Hospital. Several nurses and doctors noticed that, along with the bullet wound, Huey Long also had a small cut on his mouth, along with some slight bruising. When one of the doctors asked Long where the split lip came from, he told the doctor, quote, That's where he hit me. After that, Long's medical care turned into more political theater. Although there were several doctors and residents who could have treated Long immediately, there was a delay in getting him medical treatment until they found a doctor who was an actual Long supporter, since there was some concern his political enemies might have done him further harm. They settled on Dr. Arthur Vadreen, superintendent of the Charity Hospital in New Orleans, who happened to be in Baton Rouge on business. Dr. Vadreen did what he could to treat Huey Long, but by the time he reached the hospital, Long had already lost a lot of blood and was going into shock. Once surgery began, some of the surgeons noted that Long had a hematoma in his small bowel and a perforation in his colon. Although the surgeons sutured the perforation, the damage was already done. On September 10th, 1935, at 4.10 a.m., Huey Long slipped into a coma and died. At the request of Mrs. Long, no autopsy was to be performed following his death. After Long's death, the authorities were quick to pin the blame squarely on Carl Weiss in an attempt to head off the many conspiracy theories that were already brewing. Long had made countless enemies over the years, so naturally, some people were quick to suggest the assassination was part of a broader conspiracy to eliminate the kingfish. Dr. Weiss's family immediately jumped to his defense, and many members of the family received death threats from Long supporters. An official inquest towed the official line as Long's bodyguards testified that Carl Weiss shot Long in the stomach before being gunned down in a hail of bullets. Huey Long's widow, Rose, received an anonymous letter that claimed Carl Weiss was paid the sum of $3,000 with the promise that his family would be taken care of if he killed Huey. The Louisiana Bureau of Investigation actually uncovered a reported meeting 
that occurred two or three months before Long's death with a group of anti-Long members calling themselves the Minutemen. But Huey Long himself learned of this meeting and actually had his aides dangle microphones from fishing poles outside the windows to record the plot against the senator. Following Long's death, hundreds of his supporters pleaded with the U.S. Department of Justice to open their own investigation into the allegations of conspiracy. But the Justice Department refused to investigate, unless anyone could produce further evidence of a plot. In the early 1990s, historians learned that Mrs. Mabel G. Bindings, the daughter of General Louis Gare, the former head of the Louisiana Bureau of Investigations, inherited some items from her father after his death in 1966. This included a safety deposit box in New Orleans that contained several items related to the shooting, including crime scene photographs, some torn clothing, and a small 32 caliber automatic handgun, along with six rounds, one of which was spent. This was the gun allegedly owned by Carl Weiss. In 1991, in order to dispel any rumors still hovering around the case, the Louisiana State Police reopened the investigation and took a closer look at the items retrieved from the safe deposit box. But when the gun was tested and the recovered rounds were examined by the state police crime lab, they proved that the spent round that killed Huey Long could not have come from that 32 automatic. The crime lab concluded that this was likely due to a lack of chain of custody of the gun rather than any indication of a broader cover-up. Further evidence indicated that holes in the front and back of Long's coat actually resulted from a weapon being fired in close proximity to the body. But this contradicted the eyewitness testimony given by Long's bodyguards, who claimed Weiss shot Long from a few feet away. But once again, some investigators suggested the crime lab's conclusions may have been faulty, and that the appearance that the killing shot occurred at point-blank range might have been the result of natural decay of the coat's fibers over the decades. One story claimed that a close friend of Long's, Dr. Clarence Lorio, made an unusual appearance at the funeral home while the kingfish was on the embalming table. One of the morticians later claimed Dr. Lorio took over the procedure, put on a pair of rubber gloves, and opened up the abdominal sutures. After which he dug around and retrieved a bullet from the body. A bullet, the mortician said, that was much larger than one that would have come from a 32 caliber handgun. Although members of Dr. Weiss's family admitted that the man did own a 32 caliber automatic, they insisted the doctor kept it inside a sock in the glove box of his car. Later, some stories also came forward that Weiss's car was moved from its original parking spot and that the gun was no longer in the glove box where he kept it. This all leads to the prevailing alternate theory as to what actually occurred that day. If you think about it, it seems awfully surprising that a successful young doctor with a wife and newborn son at home would grow so angry over his father-in-law losing his job that he would rush over to the Capitol and shoot Long in cold blood. You also have to consider that Judge Pavey was already nearing retirement age, and even if he wasn't gerrymandered out of his position, he probably wouldn't have remained in office much longer. So what might really have happened? 
Well, according to this theory, Dr. Weiss didn't show up to the Capitol with thoughts of shooting the Kingfish at all. According to members of Weiss's family and other supporters, the doctor showed up at the Capitol planning to angrily confront Long. He tried unsuccessfully meeting the Kingfish face-to-face multiple times, and when they finally crossed paths, things grew heated, and Dr. Weiss punched Long in the face, causing the split lip the medical staff later reported. But when Long began to pull away, his bodyguards all swarmed in to tackle the doctor. One of the bodyguards, likely Joe Messina, drew his weapon, a 38 component on a 45 chassis. But in the ensuing tussle, the gun went off, striking Long in the back and exiting the front of the torso underneath his ribcage. Long staggered away, but when the rest of the bodyguards heard the shot go off, they assumed Weiss was armed and opened fire, shooting him 61 times. But this left the bodyguards with a huge problem. Namely, they couldn't find a gun, which not only meant that they had shot an unarmed man, but it also meant that one of them had actually been the one to shoot Huey Long. The bodyguards searched the bullet-ridden body and found the man's identification. Most of the bodyguards were also members of the Louisiana Bureau of Investigation, which meant they wouldn't have much trouble identifying Weiss's vehicle. They searched the car and found the Browning 32 automatic in the sock in the glove box. The bodyguards then took the gun and dropped it in a pool of blood right next to the body before any photographs could be taken. Thus, the conspiracy was born. The Conspirators was written and produced by Nate Hale, and this episode was narrated by me, Rob Christofferson. If you'd like to hear more from me, you can check out some of my other podcasts like Rolling Through the Realms, The Order of Podcasters, or the Our Strange Skies podcast. Nate has a bunch of new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Chris, Carlos, Frazier, Lucy, Ryan, Ashley, and DC for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons to the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and access to the library of bonus mini-episodes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review The Conspirators on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost the show in Apple's rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, don't worry. You can also find The Conspirators on Stitcher, Spotify, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. You can also listen on the website theconspiratorspodcast.com to the entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, feel free to follow along or drop Nate a line on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Or even send an old-fashioned email to theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.